recording. This is BP Technology Outlook. Focus on Wind Podcast. You might be wondering why we've already done so many podcasts without there being one on wind. Wind turbines seem to have been around for such a long time. Gone are the days when driving past a wind farm used to be a remarkable event. But the technology to harness wind energy still hasn't reached maturity. And right now, it's coming on in leaps and bounds. My name is Bruce Falpe. I'm Managing Director of Strategy Consultancy BVG Associates. In 1987, we were designing little turbines with a rotor diameter of 33 metres. And that size is now sort of smaller than the cooling systems that they have on the biggest wind turbines. Brian Case, Chief Digital Officer for GE Renewable Energy. These things have gotten really, really big over the last few years. Our Cypress turbine is about the size of a New York skyscraper. And then that uh, 12 megawatt Heliot X is about the size of the Eiffel Tower. I'm Alistair Warwick. Head of Technical Functions for BP's onshore wind energy business in the United States. It's estimated that a single 12 megawatt turbine can produce enough energy for over 15,000 homes. Next time you pass a wind turbine, think as you drive past that one rotation of the rotor has possibly just generated enough energy to power your house for the day. Giles Dixon, CEO of Wind Europe. Wind has taken off very quickly. We've gone from nothing to having 190 gigawatts of capacity across Europe and being 14% of all of the electricity consumed in Europe. Solar, by comparison, is 4% of Europe's electricity. We need to grow much more still. The European Union is telling us that they want wind energy to be half of all of the electricity consumed in Europe by 2050. I think last year the industry hit the 2025 cost reduction target eight years ahead of schedule. Bogdan Gagir is a researcher from BP's Technology Futures team. Those cost reductions are expected to continue and in the latest auction round in UK, the industry hit £40 per megawatt hour, which is a value that even three or four years ago you wouldn't even be able to dream about. My name is Sarah Marshall and I am a principal engineer working for Atkins SMC Lavalin. Offshore wind is a maturing industry and, I, and I'm, I'm so impressed with the speed of which it's got to the level it has got to and the maturity and the fact that people think that it's old hat, I'm just really impressed with. I think there's new challenges as technology is moving so quickly. Turbine sizes are getting bigger and energy demands are getting greater and there's lots of materials and we can redevelop this field that we thought was going to have a 30-year lifespan and it's only been in there for 15 but now we can put in turbines twice the size. It's now a trusted energy source. But no, there's lots of continual challenges, but I think the industry is rising to meet them. But how does a wind turbine actually work? My name is Bruce Hall, CEO of Onyx Insight. A wind turbine, what does it consist of and what are we trying to do? We're trying to take the kinetic energy out of wind as it travels across our seas and across our land. At the front end, you have blades, typically three. And what the blades do is they take the kinetic energy and they turn it into a rotational power of the main shaft coming into the turbine. The next part of the wind turbine is the gearbox. And what the gearbox does, it takes that relatively slow rotation and it turns it into a much higher set of revolutions, 1,000 to 2,000 RPM. And the reason it does that is you need that, that faster revolution to be able to put it into the generator. 
And so the generator sits at the end of the nacelle, which is the box on top of a wind turbine. And that generator generates electricity. Bruce Falpe. The conventional wind industry grew up onshore in safe conditions where it's easy to access things for maintenance. It's easy to install things with cranes. And some players are setting off developing devices onshore. But uh, a lot of the world is pretty crowded. And uh, then it took the step to try and do all of those things initially in the middle of the North Sea and the like, and now very much globally. But it was really at the beginning of the new millennium that people really started thinking about moving offshore. Early wind turbines were very small. They were installed onshore, therefore they achieved very low capacity factors, maybe 20-25%. The latest technology in particular for offshore wind, where you don't have any size restriction pretty much, there are now prototypes of wind turbines at 11-12 megawatt. These can reach heights of about 250 plus meters. They can generate a capacity factor close to 50 Both the size of the turbine and the capacity factor results directly in cost reductions. We've reduced the cost of wind energy. Onshore wind is now the cheapest form of nuclear generation capacity in most of Europe. I suspect that turbine maintenance is actually easier these days than it was with the early ones. And yet the turbines are getting bigger and they're going offshore. As an engineer, it's really exciting to work in the wind sector. We get to address all sorts of technical challenges. Some examples include having to inspect a blade that is 180 feet long, which equates to the the wingspan of a 767 jumbo jet. That blade is suspended over 350 feet in the air. And one of the challenges our technicians have is to access the the cell with the gearboxes. We have to ask them to climb over 350 feet on vertical ladders. If we look to how to solve that, and one way is installing various technology within the cell to eliminate the need for these climbs. Hub heights are getting taller and taller. We really want to make sure that whenever our technicians have to go up tower, that they have everything that they need. They have the critical information at their fingertips and they're able to turn, you know, kind of that 60% of unplanned turbine maintenance really into planned maintenance activities. And if you think about the importance of that, our fuel source is intermittent. So this means that the turbines could be unavailable when winds or power prices are at their highest. So we really want to make sure that the turbines are available to, to generate as much energy as possible when the winds are blowing and power prices are at their highest. The push these days is to move one step further, which is predictive maintenance. There, you're assessing the machine's health, and then you'll make choices about whether it needs to be taken out of operation or, or certain procedures carried out on it based upon its performance, not a given schedule of 12 months or 24 months. It's basically whether it needs doing at all. And by doing it that way, moving from preventative to predictive maintenance, there you're able to save a lot of money. Now, for wind to become much more mainstream, it's got to become much more predictable. It's got to become much more measurable in terms of its production. And by enhancing or improving maintenance practices, what it is helping the operators do is to bring down what they call LCOE, which is a levelized cost of electricity, to such levels now that wind is now competing and beating some of the fossil fuel equivalents, such as coal. 
data and digital solutions has really been on the rise. And then, of course, in the next 10 or 20 years, as we uh, get smarter with, with what to do with that data and integration with control systems, and, and of course, the advent of robotics, I could see a self-diagnosing and self-fixing turbine that uh, combines the power of AI to cut down on technician tower climbs and, and really start conducting kind of some of those standard maintenance activities um, in a much more remote and efficient fashion. So technology is now advanced enough to provide good health care for our turbines. But what happens when they reach the end of their life? Giles Dixon. We have a lot of wind farms that are now getting old and the turbines need to be replaced. Now we call this repowering. You take everything down, including the foundation, and you put modern state-of-the-art turbines up in their place. When you do this, you can reduce the number of turbines on a wind farm and produce much more electricity because the new turbines are so much more powerful and efficient than the old turbines. We've repowered 60 wind farms across Europe so far. With one third fewer turbines, you can double the capacity and treble the output. People are going to start realizing that we can expand wind energy by using all of the existing sites we've got and having fewer turbines on. And that's a great thing. We can look forward to bigger and bigger turbines. These will appear offshore in fixed offshore environments. So fixed means the foundation for the turbine sits on the seabed. North Sea waters around the UK are extremely good for offshore wind because they are not very deep, they are very windy, and uh, fixed offshore can be installed in water depth of 40-50 meters. But beyond that water depth, fixed foundations are not efficient or practical anymore. And uh, this is the next most exciting technology area for the industry. We are now starting to see pilots for floating offshore platforms in water depth of 100 plus meters. Currently, we see pilots of one, two, maybe up to five turbines being tested but in the past year we have started to see announcement of the first commercial scale projects for floating offshore platforms in Europe and there is a lot of excitement in other parts of the world. The fixed offshore structures, you build these jacket designs or these monopole designs and they're assembled on a quayside and then floated out either in one piece or multiple pieces for assembly offshore and lifted into position from large offshore marine working cranes and, and vessels. But with the options that we have with the floating offshore wind, there are other advantages of assembly, like being able to float them out from a quayside and float them into position and then moor them like you would any other vessel. So there's massive opportunity there for modularization and kind of repositioning or putting them in location without lots of construction and further disruption. So the further offshore, the more likelihood you are of getting better wind, as in you're not interrupted by geological features like mountains and you're not upsetting people with having large structures spoiling beautiful views. But the further you are from shore, the more difficult it is to transmit the energy back to shore without incurring losses. It might be so far offshore that you might need a substation in between, which is what we do with our fixed turbines. So there's complications with the development of the electrical infrastructure, but I don't think it's insurmountable. It sounds like a natural development when you think about it, to take the idea of an offshore wind farm, but to be able to do it in waters that are so deep or inaccessible by making those turbines float in some way. It has such massive potential, because places that couldn't even dream of having a wind farm can now have a look at this floating turbine technology. I'm Abigail Smith. 
I started looking at offshore wind when I worked with the BP Alternative Energy Team. Floating offshore wind has a lot of overlapping areas that exist within BP already. So a lot of the skill sets and knowledge that's required for floating offshore wind, BP already has and oil and gas majors already have because there's one thing they know how to do well, it's make structures float offshore. So the offshore wind resource potential has been evaluated by many organizations and generally it is considered that the floating offshore wind resource is much larger than for fixed offshore wind, probably as high as two or three times more and that would be more than enough to power the whole world. So in terms of potential there is a lot of resource available. To effectively drive down the cost of floating wind, big companies will be required to step in and to help these projects scale up. There's enormous amounts of investment and technical capability and collaboration with industry and government that's required to make floating wind a viable economic option. I think startups also have a very important role to play in the floating wind sector because they bring a lot of the innovation and a lot of the creativity that when combined with large corporates and large investors, you can really create something new that continues to drive down costs. And we're also seeing a lot of activity coming from universities. A large project can eventually be funded and deployed offshore as a single pilot turbine. What about airborne wind? Because to many people, that's a whole brand new thing. Bruce Falpe. So maybe airborne is the last big potential game changer there is for the wind industry. If it establishes, then it could be the end of conventional wind turbines as we know them. Think about flying a two-string kite on the beach. When you're flying it hard across the wind in a figure of eight, it wants to uh, pull you along on the sand. But if you just have those two strings about the same length, the kite will just hover gently above you. One potential advantage with airborne wind is that it uses a lot less material and in the end, your device is going to be cheaper. The other potential advantage is that you're likely to be able to generate more energy per square kilometer of a wind farm. I think in the next 10 years, we'll either see airborne technology really moving on a pace and starting to establish, or we'll see the, the guys that are pushing forward on the technology, putting it to bed, giving up on it, because there's so much development in the conventional wind industry. It's such big business and costs are coming down there. So uh, unless airborne wind gets on with it, it won't keep a perceived cost advantage for long. So it's about not sort of saying one technology is better than the other. It's about choosing the appropriate technology for the right location and making sure that the, the energy demand is met. I am a massive advocate in offshore wind, both fixed and floating, but I think that it should be used in collaboration with other alternative energies. I think we should be making the most of our solar power. I think we should be using geothermal energy. I think we should be using wave and tidal where appropriate. I really think it's more about how technologies work together and what's the most appropriate for that locale. Another thing that is happening is electricity today is only 25% of all of the energy that we consume in Europe. The rest of it is petrol we put in our cars, the gas you use for heating, the shipping fuel, the aviation fuel, and the fossil fuels that are consumed in heavy industry. And nearly all of this, what we call the other 75% of the energy system that's not electricity, nearly all of it is powered by fossil fuels. So if we want to fight climate change, 
we've got to increase the share of electricity in the energy mix. It's only 25% today, it needs to be at least 50% by 2050. Standing tall against the elements, whether they're out on the ocean or on a hilltop, wind turbines have come a long way in the last 25 years and have proven to be a formidable energy source. As if that wasn't enough, they're now learning how to float and fly in a bid to become a major player in the pathway towards net zero. This was a BB Technology Outlook production. Focus on Wind podcast. Standing tall against the elements, whether they're out on the ocean or on a hilltop, wind turbines have come a long way in the last 25 years – 